Well, good morning. Um, this morning we're going to be looking at the final verses of chapter 10 of Hebrews. Um, the, these verses, I, I entitled them uh, Call to Perseverance. And uh, as is typical with this author, after he's given a very stern warning, he, he, he follows it up with an encouragement. And uh, that I, that's the way I see this text. As, uh, it's, it's an encouragement to believers. And uh, it still has some warning into it, and it has some directive into it. Uh, but uh, but it's, uh, it, it, it's, a, it's a passage that, uh, that, that should encourage and should, uh, uh, should uh, cause these, these folks uh, living under the conditions they're living under uh, to, uh, to be encouraged in the Lord and to... Uh, to uh, uh, I can't say too much. I raised him. Anyway, uh, anyhow, uh, uh, it's it's a, it's a it should be seen as an encouragement. I, I kind of quoted Galatians six because I kind of thought I felt that kind of went along with this. And and let us not grow weary in doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. And that's kind of what this text is going to say. That's pretty much what this text is saying. As as we move into it, it's uh, uh, it's a, it has a very unique and very interesting way of handling an Old Testament passage. He has done that all the way through. It's once again from the Septuagint. So if you look it up in your Bible, it's not going to read even close to how it reads in uh, in uh, from the Hebrew. And and he modified it as well. But we'll be getting there in a little while. So and we'll talk about that when we get there. But anyhow, uh, it's 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 a call to. Uh, to hold on, it's a call to preserve, it's a call to keep doing, is, is kind of the idea that is going on here. And, and I broke it down in, in that he tells us to remember our past and look to the future. That's, that's pretty much what, he's, pretty much what he's, he's telling them as we, get in, as we get into this text this morning. So uh, before we do, I, I know last week I kind of, I knew I had a long message and I needed the whole time, so I didn't break for anything. So uh, are there any prayer requests this morning? You know, I used to I used to own a trucking company years ago, and there are a lot of lady truck drivers. Yeah, I know. And I watched some male guys think one day they were going to mess with one because she had a set of doubles, and they parked their rigs all around her, so she had to back up, and she backed around them and drove off. <laughs> I drove doubles for seven years. I never could back them. <laughs> anyway. Yeah, well, I'm just saying. I'm just saying she's going to be fine. <laughs> she's going to be. Yeah, she's going to, there, she's going to be fine. Anyway, uh, any other prayer requests this morning? No. Okay. Ed, would you open us? Lord, we thank you for your love, and thank you that we have the privilege of uh, hearing your word this morning. I pray that you quicken it to our hearts, Father. Given us uh, traveling mercies and keep her safe, Lord. Uh, guide and direct those families that have uh, moved on, Lord. I pray that you help them to find a, a place to worship you and give them direction as they seek you, Lord. We give these things to you in your name. Amen. 
Amen. So let's first of all look at remembering your past in verses 32 through 34. But recall the former days, when after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with suffering, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, and sometimes being partnered with those so treated. For you had compassion for those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of our property, since you knew that, um, that you yourselves had better possessions and an abiding, a better possession and a, an abiding one. So we're going to look here, first of all, as he, he, he calls them in the, in the ESV, it, it's, it says, uh, but recall the former days, which is a, which is a good uh, translation of this word. It's the same word that is used in, uh, first uh, Corinthians, uh, 11, 24, uh, by Paul, where he, uh, is, uh, giving the instructions for the communion table. And he says, do this in remembrance of me. It's, that's the same word. That's the word that's used here. Uh, um, some translations translate it that way. Remember. It's the same word that Jesus used in Luke twenty-two nineteen, where he says, to do this in remembrance of me. It's from the same root word. It means to remember. It means to call to mind. But it's not simply the, the kind of idea where you, where you say, uh, hey, do you remember the other day when we went someplace and did something? And you go, uh, yeah, I kind of remember that. No, this is a vivid remembrance. It's a remembrance that brings it to the, re- to, to the fact that it's like the reality that it's happening right now. It's very vivid. It's, very, it's something that made a strong impression upon you. It's something you cannot forget. That's, that's the idea. That's what he's saying here. He's saying, remember. Remember the former days. Remember the days when you came to Christ. That's the next thing he says, that you were enlightened. Remember those days. Bring it to mind. It should be on your mind as if it's happening right this moment. That, that, that's what he's expressing to them. That's the idea here. He says, remember that moment you met Jesus. Remember how that was. And keep that in front of you. That's the idea here. And he's going to then go on some of the things that happened in those former days. A couple of weeks ago, I said, remember your history with God. I got support for that right here. That's what he's saying. Remember your track with God. Remember how he's taken you through things, what he's done, how he brought you to salvation and what he did with you after that. Remember those things. Bring those to mind. That's, That's the idea here. He says, after you were enlightened. After you came to know Christ, um, in the early development of the church, we don't so much practice this today. We generally, someone comes to faith, we usually put them through some kind of training of some kind. uh, And we have them meet with the pastor or the elders or whoever and go through a series of things before we baptize them. In the early church, they got saved, they got dunked. I mean, it, it happened Right now, and you understand that in the community of the uh, in the Jewish community, the minute they were baptized, they were excommunicated from Judaism. It marked them. It was a serious mark. It's not kind of like it is here in America. It was a serious event when they did this, and that's kind of what this is calling. Remember when you were enlightened and you got baptized and you got cut off? That's kind of what he's saying here. That's the idea. The, what's going to follow will uh, we'll give some definition to that. He says, he says, remember that. Remember those days. Remember your coming to Christ. Remember how he saved you. And then remember what followed. 
and how you handled it and how God brought you through it. Because that's the, the next thing he's going to say to them. He says, he says, but recall the former days when after you were enlightened, you endured. That's the next thing he says. You endured. The term uh, speaks of, and then he goes on to say, uh, struggles and suffering. This phrase that he's, he's putting together here is the idea of arduous physical exercise. It's the idea of athletic training that Paul is going to talk about later on. He's going to use this example again. He used all those kind of things. Uh, but it's, it's, it's uh, the intensity of what you went through, the struggle, the sweat, the toil that was involved in that. Uh, he used it in 2.10 of Jesus, uh, the, the suffering that he went through. It's the same term. He used it in, and Paul used it in, uh, in uh, 2 Timothy 2.3, where he's talked about military training. You know, when, when the military is at war, it's at war. But when it's at peace, it's training for war. That's what it does. I was in a missile unit in Germany, and uh, we trained constantly. Well, it was probably a good idea because that thing we put on the end of the missile, it was nuclear. And we trained. We trained. And then we trained. And they threw scenarios at us constantly. It was oh, you just got hit by a ground attack and there's an air attack and you're all dead. But nevertheless, you're supposed to show what you were going to do when all of this happened. Uh, but that's the idea here. It's, it's the intensity of training. It's, it's, it's that kind of, kind of uh, uh, idea. It's the intensity of, of exertion uh, in athletics. And it's also the intensity of suffering in the name of the Lord. That's really what's going on here. So he's telling them, remember that. Remember what you went through. Remember how you came to Christ and remember how you were treated thereafter. And then remember what you did, how you responded to all of that, because that's what he picks up in the next verse, in verse 33. Sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction and sometimes being partners with those who so treated. Now, there's a couple of things before we really move in to the whole idea of how they were treated, uh, what they went through, uh, the things that they had to endure. And that says we need to remember back in chapter 2, in verse 3, we are told that these are second-generation believers. We need to keep that in mind, because that's going to be an important factor in how we, how we look at these, these verses. And then in chapter 12, verse 4, He's going to tell them, but you haven't yet, interesting that he says yet, you haven't yet suffered to shedding of blood. In other words, martyrdom hasn't been a mark of your suffering to this point. Those two things keep in mind. Keep those kind of in the back of your mind, because they help put a time frame around where we are. Uh, that's one of the problems with the book of Hebrews. We really have some clues to, we know it was written to Hebrews, but we don't know where those Hebrews were. Uh, secondly, we don't really know what time it was written. We have a good idea, but we don't really know. And there's debate on I'll tell you right now, there's debate on that. I've got one commentator that puts it way after the fall of Jerusalem, which I think is totally wrong. But 
But uh, one commentator I read, that's where he puts it. Puts everything after the fall of Jerusalem. Most put it before. Most put it around the early to mid-60s A.D., the, the writing of the book. Uh, so those, those are all kind of significant things that we're going to be coming into. Uh, we can't really date uh, all of these things that well. <clears throat> so, so it's kind of important that we keep in mind that two things that, that compound this is, one, they're second-generation believers, so they're probably not from Jerusalem. And two, two, they are, they haven't, they haven't, res, they have not resisted to the point of blood or, not, or martyrdom. They haven't faced any executions within their time frame. So now, now we'll kind of look at what, uh, what he says happened to them. He says, first of all, uh, they were publicly exposed to repro- reproach and affliction. The way this is written and the tenses that it's in, it, it would indicate that this was for a period of time. It wasn't just a one-time event or a short-term event, but it had some time frame to it. It went on for a while. It wasn't something that just, uh, uh, that just uh, happened and then they moved on. You know, change brings with it reactions. And you understand that in the first century A.D., the world changed dramatically. The Savior was born. He was crucified. Christianity was born. The church was born. And uh, as the text says, these were men who upset the world. Um, and the world got upset by it. it. It shook the establishment. It caused a great deal of discomfort in various places. Uh, it, it upset the business of idol-making at one time and caused riot. Paul was infamous for showing up in town, causing a riot, get thrown in jail, and run out of town. You know, That was his resume. Here, I want to be your pastor. Here's my resume. Been jailed. <laughs> all, this, all this kind of stuff. That, that was Paul. Uh, but those are the kind of things that went on here. Uh, it, it changed, the Christianity changed the general course of, world, of the world, uh, the known world at that time. It, it caused families to be torn apart. It caused communities to be torn apart. And as a result of that, those who were members of the Christian community were abused by the rest of the world. And still are today, for that matter. Uh, they, they still are today. That's, that's what he's talking about here. They were publicly exposed. They were outed publicly. They were reproached. They were called names. You know, the, the political um, atmosphere that is in our country today, and, and I'm not, I don't want to take either side here, despite the tie, I am conservative, but nevertheless, <laughs> dis, nevertheless, nevertheless, uh, the political climate today is if you don't agree with me, I put a, Put a ism after your name. You're, you're this or you're a phobe something or another. You know, we call names. And both sides are doing it. One side's a little more proficient than the other. But nevertheless, both sides are doing it. We, we, we label people. 
We claim the big standard for the world is tolerance, but we don't tolerate anybody who doesn't agree with me. You know, that's that's the bottom line. Well, that's that's what we have here. We have that even exaggerated at this point. They were exposed to reproach. In other words, they were called out. They were marked. They were made fun of. They were belittled. You realize the Roman Empire, not understanding the teachings of Scripture, believed, believed that Christians were cannibals because of the communion table. They believed that they practiced homosexuality because of the, the, the greeting each other with a holy kiss. They misinterpreted all that kind of stuff, and they labeled Christians that way. That was, that was, a, was a part of it. And he says, they, they were inflicted, they were pro- made fun of, they were probably beaten. All kinds of various things went on. That's what, he, that's what he's talking about here in this first part. He goes, he goes, this was part of your struggle and your sufferings. You were publicly exposed to reproach and afflictions. And then you also identified yourself with those who were being so treated. Maybe they didn't attack me, but they attacked you and I came alongside well, then that opened me to, to the, same, the same kind of idea. That's what he's talking about here. These were the conditions under which these people lived. That's, that's what he's saying here. They were probably, in some cases, deprived of any kind of legal protection. The, the Roman law was a lot different from ours, but, uh, well, maybe not so different. But anyway, there was, there was a, a being deprived of, of, of uh, legal protection. Jesus said in Matthew 5, uh, 10 through 11, Blessed are those who persecute because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you, uh, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Jesus said we're to count that as blessed. But the idea here is they stood together. Uh, they stood together with those who were being mistreated, and they came to their aid. That's, that's the picture that he's, he's painting here in verse, 30, 30, uh, uh, verse 33. Then in 34, it gets a little more extensive here. He says, you had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property, since you knew that you yourselves had a better uh, possession and, a, and, and an abiding one. So he goes on and he says, you had compassion or sympathy is, is the idea here. He says, with those who were in prison. Now, today, and there, I know there are, there are some folks who attend this church who are part of prison ministries. This isn't quite the same thing. Uh, most of the people who are in our prison are convicted felons of some kind of heinous crime. And uh, uh, they probably, and they deserve to be in prison. However... Christian outreach to those prisons is a valid and, and important thing. Uh, the, these people need the gospel just as much as any, well, maybe more so, but just as much as anybody else. But in the Roman days, prisons were a little different. There was no judge who ruled that they had to get the best medical care available, <laughs> which is why you can't get into Mercy Hospital in the emergency room. Uh, there was nobody that, that, that ordered 
what their meals would be like or that they were to have television or they were to have this and cable TV and on and on and on and on. Uh, there was none of that. They threw you in a cell. You were responsible for your food, your clothing, and everything else. They just threw you in a cell and put a great big Roman guard with a sword outside. That's what they did. That was a Roman prison. Now, if you were a Roman citizen, you did get a food allowance. I couldn't figure out, I never did figure out what the amount of that was and what it amounted to and how much food you would get. But you did get a food allowance if you're a Roman citizen. If you weren't a Roman citizen, which most of these people would not have been, you were just thrown in a hole. And you starved to death. Unless your relatives and your friends took care of you while you were in prison. That's what he's talking about here. This is the picture that Paul made of 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 uh, of of calling them when he was in the Mamertine prison in his second imprisonment uh, to uh, to come to him and to bring for him and to provide for him to bring his coat. Prison didn't provide anything. They didn't provide orange jumpsuits. You know, whatever you had on when they threw you in is what you had on, and that's all you had the whole time you were there. It didn't matter what summer, winter, spring, or fall. Uh, that's that's the picture here. The conditions, uh, the conditions were were also related to status. If you had money, and you had the ability to, as Paul did in his first imprisonment, you could rent a house, and a Praetorian guard was chained to you, and you could receive people and have food and whatever you needed. Uh, but the average guy was in a hole. Period. That's 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 the way it was. So when you were, we're talking about they visited, it also opened them up to the possibility of saying, hey, you're one of them, and you wind up in jail too. This is a very serious, th- a very serious thing that he's talking about here. He said, you had sympathy, you had compassion uh, for those who were in prison. You helped take care of each other even when they were incarcerated in a Roman jail. Which means you brought them food, you brought them clothes, you made sure you made sure that they were that they were okay, that they had the things to sustain life is is the idea here because the Romans could care less. And then he goes on and he says, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property since you knew that you uh, that since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and and an abiding one. They lost their property. In other words, the government, more than likely, confiscated their homes, their farms, whatever they had, they took it. They just took it. It was the IRS on steroids, you know. They took, they took anything they wanted. They just took it. I mean, you can see Acts 23, 16, and 24, 23, 27, 3. And, and 2 Timothy 4.13, all of those refer to this, this kind of thing. Matthew <clears throat> chapter 6, verses 19 and 20. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and, uh, break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal, For where your treasure is, there your heart is. That's what these people were practicing. 
They were understanding that. Uh, they were understanding that our treasure is not in this farm. Our treasure is in heaven. Our treasure is the inheritance that we have in Jesus Christ. That was the idea here. Now, just to kind of look at this for a minute, there's a sequence of events here. They had received light, and as a result of that, they had endured suffering. Verse 32. Verse 33, they had been exposed to, uh, to ridicule, and they stood with one another. In verse 34, they took care of those who had been imprisoned. Some of them, meaning some of them had been imprisoned, incidentally. And they took care of those that who were imprisoned, and they, and they suffered the loss of their property. Now, what, what the text doesn't say is when this happened, how this happened, where this happened. Uh, we need to remember, once again, that they're second-generation believers, not first-generation first believers. And they have not tasted, or they have, none of them have tasted at this juncture in their lives martyrdom. So, so first of all, it rules out Jerusalem. These people weren't in Jerusalem. Because in Jerusalem, at this point in time, Stephen was executed in 33 AD. James was executed in 40, uh, 43 AD. And James the Just was stoned to death at the orders of the high priest Ananias in 62 AD. All of that happened in Jerusalem. So you can't say of the people in Jerusalem they hadn't tasted death. And they weren't first generation. Incidentally, James the Just would have fit into the possible time frame of when this was going on. But uh, it still uh, makes the point. It probably didn't happen before 65 A.D. Because in 64 AD, A.D., Nero burned Rome. I think we talked about this before. He, his, his plan was, this was a great redevelopment plan. I'll just burn down the city and then rebuild it, and I'm going to blame it on the Jews. Because I don't like them anyway. And everybody will go along with that. Problem was, he burned out the Jews. Guess where the fire stopped? The Christian community. So he blamed the Christians. Hey, they're just, they're just an offshoot of the Jews anyway. We'll blame them. So he blamed the Christians. Tychius and Clement give some reports of what happened in 65 AD and following in Rome. Because 65 is when the persecution against Christians began in Rome. Um, Tychius says they were made a matter of sport. In other words, they, they were made a matter of sport. It says they were wrapped in animal skins and torn apart by wild dogs. Uh, they were used as human torches at night. These, these are some of the things that the Roman historian Tychius reported. Clement, in 1 Clement 6.1, says that uh, he, he speaks of how they treated women. Uh, he said that they were... Uh, they were uh, uh, they were made in the Colosseum, I assume, uh, to act out the mythologies of uh, Dirisi. In the legend of Dirisi, she was tied to two bulls going in opposite directions and ripped apart. And then the, the other thing he says they were to do was they were, to, they were forced to act out the mythology of the daughters of Danis. I'd never heard, I don't know much about Roman mythology. I looked both of these 
people up to find out what was going on here. Dianus was a guy that had 50 daughters. I, my grandfather had eight daughters. You know, I can't imagine 50. <laughs> His brother, on the other hand, had 50 sons. The daughters were forced to marry the brother, the brothers, their cousins. That was the idea here. However, the daughters were not too thrilled with this idea, so on their wedding night, they slaughtered their new husbands. Basically, what Clement is saying is women were forced to kill their husbands, probably their children. That was acted out, as Tychius says, they were made sport. So you can't really say this happened after 65 AD in Rome because they obviously suffered the blood. That's obviously what happened in those days. So that leaves us with, uh, with another thing that happened. So it's somewhere between the early days of Jerusalem in the 30s and the early, the early 40s, and it's somewhere before 65 AD, uh, somewhere in that, stra- that area. But there's an event that happened that may fit this, and there are some clues to that, but it gives us some definition to a time frame at least. In 49 AD, the Emperor Claudius, who was really fed up with the Jews in, in, in Rome because they were constantly indulging in riots. Incidentally, their riots were a result of the Christian movement within their community. Anyhow, anyhow, so according uh, uh, to Suponifus, I guess is how you say his name, uh, he expelled all Jews from Rome. And he killed them, but he expelled them. And of course, he confiscated all their property. Uh, incidentally, in Acts 18, 1 through 3, we have the account of Priscilla and Aquila, two very familiar people in, in the New Testament who were residents of Rome and forced to leave under Claudius. And they met up with Paul in Corinth, where they resettled. So there gives some, some idea here. Well, it's not really proof. It's, reasonably, it's reasonable to see that these people in Rome were second-generation believers. They were not from Jerusalem. They had not, Rome had not, until Paul wrote the book of Roman, Romans, there had been no apostolic teaching in Rome. Uh, probably people like Priscilla and Aquila are the ones who founded the church there and started it and got it going. There, uh, is the idea here. Uh, that's why if you read the book of Romans, the first eight chapters are a systematic theology of the gospel. That's what they are. And, and, and they were given to them because they hadn't had that. They hadn't had that. And, 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 and so um, since no apostolic members had ever came there, it's, it's kind of reasonable to, to assume these are the kind of things that went on there. Um, because martyrdom began in 65 A.D. under Nero. So probably this, these events that are being discussed here happened in the early 50s A.D. 49, 50, 51, somewhere in there. Uh, these kind of events began because Claudius was just fed up with the Jews and he, he threw them out. They were later allowed to come back. And then he goes on to say, he goes, all of this happened to you. Keep this in mind. Remember these things. These things should be right. Now, I've got to tell you right now, if all these things happened to me, I don't think I'd forget them. 
And that's what he's saying. Don't forget these things. Keep these things in mind. These should be vivid in your memory. And remember that you accepted this. Uh, you, you, ex, you accepted, you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property because you knew you had a better possession, an abiding one. First Peter 1 Peter 1.4. Well, let's pick it up at 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. To an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you. These people clung to that. That verse hadn't been written yet, but nevertheless, they clung to that idea. They understood that. They understood that idea. No oppressor can rob what God has given to us. No matter what happens in this terrestrial plane, nothing can be taken from our eternal inheritance. That's that's the idea that he wants them to understand. That's an abiding hope. That's a hope that doesn't go away. That's an assurance that he's saying here. That's where they had tied their hope. And he's saying as a result of that, remember what has happened, and he's going to tell them, and keep on doing, is, is the idea here. Because in verses 35 through 39, he is going to tell them to have confidence for the future. That's what he's going to say. He's saying, based on this stuff, because the next word is therefore. What's it there for? Whatever went on before. And what went on before? To remember all the things that you've, you've suffered for the cause of Christ. He says, therefore... Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has great reward, for you have indeed, uh, for you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. For yet a little while, and the coming one will come and will not delay. But my righteous one shall live by faith, and if he sh- and if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not those who shrink back and are destroyed but those who have faith and preserve their souls. So here he he begins, he says, therefore, now kind of the construct here gives the idea that they faced this persecution. If I'm correct, it was the expulsion from Rome. They faced that. They went through what went on. Some of them were thrown in jail. They were ridiculed, all this kind of thing. Then eventually they were all thrown out. They lost their property. All of these kind of things. And they went to other places. And we have, for example, Priscilla and Aquila living in Corinth. They seem to be living well. They're tent makers. They're working at their trade. Uh, they seem to have an open ability to, to share the gospel. Paul comes there. A church is built. They train Apollos, who becomes one of the great preachers in the New Testament. Uh, you know, all those kind of things are going on. So what I'm saying here is, there seems to be a period of rest and peace following all this tribulation. And it seems to be that maybe that's gone on for a bit of time. And one of the reasons militaries train all the time is because if you just sit around, you get fat and lazy. And if you have to go to war, you're not going to be able to. And that's what Paul is saying here. We don't want to rest on our laurels. We don't want to just say, eh, 
You know, I, I, I'm often, um, I've, been, uh, I've been teaching Bible for approximately 40 years now, somewhere in that range. And uh, uh, I lost count of it somewhere along the line. But anyway, um, what I've seen is in the American church, there's a general laziness toward, toward things. Uh, we tend to think that we live, we, I, think, I think most of us have gotten over this idea, but I can remember uh, one time a guy telling me that the, the church is here to save the nation. And I looked at him and I said, no. Our job is to preach the gospel to people that they might get saved, not to the not to the government, the nation, you know, was his idea. We have to save America. And then we have the idea that America, that we are a Christian country. Actually, we're, we're listed in the world chart as pagan because we accept everything, you know, is the idea. But... But none of those things are true in reality. Uh, we were built on a strong Judo-Christian ethic. And we were developed, our law system was developed under that ethic. However, if you're paying any attention to what's going on, that's rapidly being perverted. It's rapidly being perverted. And it's been having been perverted since the end of World War II in reality. And it's been increasing. And it's been comfortable to be a Christian here for a long time. Uh, I can remember my parents every Sunday morning. We loaded up all the kids in the neighborhood and took them to Sunday school. You know, and everybody was fine with that. Of course, most of the parents, it was because they could sleep in. But that's what bus ministries were for, too. So parents could sleep in. (laughs) Anyway. Uh, sorry. <laughs> Anyhow, I don't want to discourage any evangelism to children at all. I don't mean to do that. That's not that's not my point. Uh, but uh, but you you did those kind of things, and everybody accepted it. Oh, you what? You go to church? Everybody, that's fine. Today you say you go to church, and they look at you like what? You know, the Indianapolis Five Hundred is that today? I think that's today. Is on is on. You know. Or there's a baseball game, or the Super Bowl, or whatever it is, you know, that, or we can go into the lake, whatever it is. We've lost that, that sense of anything. And we who are in the church, in some churches at least, is, it's just like, well, we go and we do, and we go home, and that's what we do on Sunday, and that's it. We don't take it any farther than that. You know, but this is to be a lifestyle. And what happens is when... When the pressure gets put on, if you're not training for the pressure, you're going to crumble. You're going to cave. You know, what are you going to do when somebody walks into the building and points a gun at your child's head and says, renounce, or I pull the trigger? What are you going to do? That's a reality that will probably come. In the tribulation period. Not that we will be here then, but there will be people being saved during that time and we'll face it. It's a reality that could happen before then. It's a reality that are happening for some people in the world right now today. That's why he's saying this. 
That's what this is about. Remember what happened. Therefore, though you've had a time of peace, be prepared. Be prepared. Uh, Keep all this stuff in mind. He says, there appears to be a lapse here, but don't lose your confidence. All that confidence you had when you stood firm, when they came and they took your property and you surrendered it joyfully, when you visited your friends in prison knowing that you could be accompanying them, when you stood up with your friends who were being ridiculed in the street, don't lose that confidence. Keep that strength all the time because it could happen anytime. That's, that's kind of the idea that he's wanting, wanting to get across here. He says, he says you, need to, you need to be prepared to, to confess your faith boldly, to have confidence, which has great reward, is the idea that he's saying here. Uh, faith is to be confessed in a bold and confident way. And here the word, he's not talking about our confidence in, in coming to God in prayer from 4-6 or, or, or praying with a sincere heart that he spoke of in 10, 19, and 22. Here is the confidence we show toward men. We speak out the gospel as Paul and, and uh, excuse me, as Peter and John did before the Sanhedrin in Acts 4-13 when he stood up to their demands uh, to not preach the gospel. Uh, this is the idea here, that before men, we are confident in who we believe. That's, that's, that's what he's, 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 he's telling them uh, here. And he, and he says that it's going to have great reward. Luke chapter 6, verse 22. Jesus said this. He said, blessed are you when people hate you and when they execute you and revile you and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. That's, that's the idea here. We are, to show, we are to show confidence in front of men in our gospel proclamation uh, and in our reason for our faith. In verse 36, he goes on and he says, he says, for you have need of endurance. Uh, that just goes right along with this. You've had a lull time. You've had some downtime to refresh. But you know what? You've got, to, you've got to keep your endurance level up. You can't let the endurance level drop. An athlete, when he's done with the, with the marathon, he might take a few days off. But he's got to get back into training right now or he's going to lose it. He's just, you're just going to, if you don't use it, you lose it. That's the idea here. That's the idea he's talking about. You need confidence. You stood, you faced, and you stood under suffering. Now God will fulfill his promise. Your joy in doing his will, because that's what he's going to go on to say. He says, you need endurance, so when, so, so when you have done the will of God, you might receive the promise. Here it is, whatever, wherever God has placed you in life, whatever he has you to do, uh, you, you're obedient, you continue in obedience. This is a call to continue in obedience. Not to just go say, hey, I did my part. I'm going to go sit down. Paul uh, told the Ephesians in chapter 6, verses uh, 13 and 14, he says he concluded it. They lap over. That's why I've got both verses here, even though it's only a few words. He, he tells them about strapping on the armor of God. He says, having done all to stand, stand therefore. In other words, do it all. Do all the training. Do put on all the gear. Get ready for the battle. And once you've done it, stand. 
That's what he says. Then we come to this interesting passage. And here we uh, probably need a little bit of, we're going to need a little bit of uh, background, I think. Here the author directs his his reader's attention to the promise uh, that requires endurance that is spoken of. He says, yet a little while, and the coming one will come and will not delay. But my righteous one shall live by faith. And if he shrinks back, my soul has no uh, no pleasure in him. This text is a combination of two Old Testament texts. The introductory words, yet a little while, uh, come from Isaiah chapter 26, verse 20. The bulk of the text comes from Habakkuk 3, the second half of verse 3 of Habakkuk and verse 4. The historical setting of Habakkuk 2, well, of Habakkuk, in in effect, is is the latter part of the 7th century B.C. Who ruled the world? you know who ruled the world in the 7th century? Babylon. So we're talking about the Babylonian, the time of the Babylonians, uh, and the, the oppression that Babylon that Babylon brought against Judah. That's, 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 that's what he's addressing. And he, he, was, uh, he was calling out to God because of the oppression. And he wondered if divine righteousness would be vindicated on the earth. That's what he's asking in the text as it is written. And when you read it, when you read it in, in your Bible, you're going to be reading it translated from, of course, from, from the Hebrew. Um, our author used the Septuagint. And then he modified it. Now understand something here. That doesn't change our doctrine of inspiration. When a New Testament writer takes an Old Testament passage and makes application from it, it becomes inspired. And it becomes the Word of God uh, in a new form. And he brings out the meaning of it for us today. Now, I'm going to tell you, this is an interesting thing. Have any of you really ever studied any Old Testament commentaries? Gone into any real exegetical commentaries from the Old Testament? Every one of those Old Testament guys will tell you, don't read the New Testament into it. That's what they tell you. You can't read the New Testament into it. You've got to keep it in the historical setting and how the people who heard it understood it. Well, if I'm teaching the book of Habakkuk, that's what you would get. Except for when we get to this passage, because a New Testament author took this passage and said, this is the way it's to be used for you. So it is okay to do it. <laughs> I think, anyway. But he says here, he says, he says uh, here the quote is given a little different emphasis. It's made messianic. He changes a little bit of the word order. He changes a couple of pronouns. And he's telling us, he's telling us here, yet in a little while, the coming one, Messiah, that's what he's saying here. The coming one is Messiah. Uh, the coming one is a title for Christ. It's seen in, in Matthew 11.3, Luke 7.20, Revelation 1, 4, 8, and 8, and in 4.8, in all those places. Those texts are all written down there for you. Uh, but uh, it, it's a title for Messiah. And he's basically saying that the vindication of God's righteousness is the coming of the Messiah. And it's talking about the second coming here. 
That's, that's the idea here. And what he's telling him is that the righteous man was to please, was to please God by trusting him, putting his loyalty in God. That's the idea here, that it's being expressed. And that's what he's saying to these people. He says, hey, remember all this stuff that happened to you. And as we look to the future, remember, you're going to need to continue with your endurance. You need to keep up your training. But know this, the promise, the promise is Messiah is coming. He's coming back. Uh, Messiah is coming and he will not delay. He will come precisely at the moment God has so directed. Sometimes for us, that's kind of hard to deal with, you know. Uh, we, we don't understand God's timetable and things. Uh, but uh, uh, the scriptures tell us that his first coming was in the fullness of time, which basically means at the precise moment God intended for Jesus to be born, he was born. Not one minute before, not one minute after. Precisely. And this is telling us that his coming will not delay. It will come precisely at the moment God has directed it to happen. Not one minute before and not one minute after. I personally have a problem with being late. It it drives me nuts. So, you know how God handled that for me? He gave me six kids. (laughs) And I suspect that over the uh, years of raising those children, I drove my wife absolutely insane sitting in the car. In the early days, I would honk the horn. I learned not to do that. (laughs) That doesn't hurry them up? Huh? That doesn't hurry them up? No, but it'll make a Scotch-Irish woman madder and all get out. (laughs) And you know what? You don't want to deal with one of those. Not from that standpoint. So, you know, God will not be late. He won't be early either. (laughs) He'll be precisely on time. He'll be precisely on time. And here, in here, in here, the text in its original form was telling Israel uh, that the vision of Isaiah would be fulfilled when God was ready to fulfill it, basically. Here he's telling us a little bit differently. He's saying the deliverer will come precisely when God indicated. That's, that's what he's saying here. And it's at that point God's righteousness will be vindicated. He who is coming, Messiah. In thir- verse 38, he, uh, he inserts the personal promise here. He says, but my righteous ones, that's believers here. Now he's talking about br- believers here, shall live by faith. This is the introduction of the next section, incidentally. This author does that all the time. He's in these last verse, these last two verses. He's going to inter- introduce the next section that we're going to be looking at, which is a, which the, which has been been entitled the Hall of Faith, uh, you know, and we'll we'll be looking we'll be looking at that. The word by faith goes through that all over the place, but that's what he's saying here. He's saying you and I are to live by faith, and and he says. You know, don't shrink back. Don't go hide. 
don't pull away. There are a lot of people that uh, I think COVID marked a lot of things. Um, we saw people who uh, who just were so frightened by this disease, they're still hiding in their houses. You know, I I I, I kind of chuckle, but on the other hand, I, I have a, a deep sympathy. I w- watch people driving down the street alone in their car with a mask on. Why? What does it do? And they're probably fully vaccinated, too, you know. And boosted, yeah. And maybe even they went back and got another one. I don't know. But, but it's like, you know, they're, they're so frightened. And we had people in our other church that they, when we reopened, we kind of followed the same pattern you guys did here. We, uh, we closed initially because we thought it was the right thing to do. And then we suddenly realized this is a political ploy. And uh, we went back to meeting. And uh, we, we moved things around. We spread people out, you know, that kind of thing. But we had some people that they wouldn't come out of their house. We had one lady that basically, she, I don't know, she may still be locked in her house. She just locked herself up. You know, that's not what God is saying here. He says, don't shrink back. Don't hide in fear. Don't, don't run when persecution comes. I'm not, I'm not declaring COVID as persecution against Christians. I'm just saying it's kind of marked some of that kind of thinking. And he's saying, he's basically saying here, he says, don't shrink back. Don't go run and hide. Keep that confidence you had when you faced all this other stuff. Stay confident. Because God has no pleasure in the guy who runs and hides. In the tribulation, that's what the unbelievers do. They go into caves and and scream for the rocks to cover them. You know the interesting thing about that passage? They know exactly where the tribulation is coming from. They curse God and ask the rocks to cover them. That's what the text says. Here he's telling us, don't be like that. Don't be like that. He who is coming will come. The way that's written in the Hebrew, in the, in the, excuse me, in the Greek, is coming, he will come. That's the literal translation. It's, it's a, it's a, it's, it's grammatically, it's made to say, absolutely sure, he's coming. No doubt, he's coming. And he won't be a minute late. And then in verse 38, he says, but we are not those who shrink back and are destroyed. He says, that's not who we are. That's not who true believers are. True believers don't shrink back. One author said, a steady retreat. None of you are ex-Marines, are you? Okay. Because I got a joke about Marines. Uh, being Army, you know, we had to do this. You know, the, Ar- the Marines never retreated. They just made a strategic advance to the rear. <laughs> That's what this is saying. They were in a steady retreat. Even if you call it an advance to the rear, don't do it. That's what he's saying here. We're not those who do that. We don't run from the fight. No matter what the cost. Because the reward and the promise are too great and he is coming. Those are are the motivations. Those are the motivations. 
And he goes on to say, but he who has faith preserves his soul. And then he's going to go through a whole list of Old Testament individuals and prophets who demonstrated that faith. And that's where we'll be going for the next several weeks. So, as we come to a conclusion on this, uh, we're going to see from Abel through the prophets in in chapter 11, um, what it means to live by faith and see it typified in these, these individuals. Are there any comments or questions this morning? Let's pray. Our Father God, we, uh, we give you thanks this, this morning for, uh, for your grace in our life. Uh, the fact that you could so love that you would send your Son to be the propitiation for our sin. That through him we can come to you with boldness and confidence. And Father, as this text indicates, may we, may we keep that confidence. May we not get out of shape and uh, stop our training. Uh, but ever be ready, uh, that we would be bold in our defense of the gospel before a world that is, that is hostile to the gospel, uh, that we would honor you in all that we do and all that we say, then our lives might draw people to you. And we would just ask this uh, in the name of our Lord Jesus. Amen.